Ethan Hawke was one year off his major breakout in Reality Bites. After making a name for himself in Dead Poets Society and heading up the ensemble of an altogether different tale of snowbound survival in A Midnight Clear, Hawke levelled up again, continuing his rise to prominence as the ostensible lead of a true-life would-be major studio blockbuster from Walt Disney Studios and hit producer-turned-filmmaker Frank Marshall. This month, we're talking miracles on mountains and beating impossible odds in 1993's Alive. With that, welcome once again to Hawk Talk. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Inglis. And I'm Timothy Evans, the heavy metal cinephile. Our guest today is doing all he can to stay alive on meagre rations without resorting to eating us on mic. He's the co-host of one of our favourite podcasts, The B-Side, writer for the film stage, Connor O'Donnell, who kindly decided to join us despite my wanting to record in minus 40 degree temperatures to bring some teeth-chattering authenticity to our discussion. So, Connor, welcome. Huddle up. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Always happy to talk hawk, as it were, and thank you for the very generous introduction. I'm not done just yet. Before we get to some hawk talking, in all seriousness, huge congratulations on recently passing 100 episodes of the B-Side. Thank you. You've climbed your own mountain there, and your show is a real inspiration for the tone and type of conversations that we want to be having here on Hawk Talk. So once again, I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you with us so early in our run. Our audience, small as it is at this point, should absolutely be listening to you and Dan Mecca, not least because you did an Ethan Hawke episode. So very briefly, just tell them about the show, as well as your hosting of Cinephile Game Night, which you recently took to New York Film Festival. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So the B-Side, it's a podcast that Dan and I have been doing for a few years for the film stage. We talk about movie stars and and directors and filmmakers and all sorts of people and not the movies that made them famous or the ones that kind of were their bread and butter, but the in-between ones and maybe some that kind of either were maligned at the time or forgotten. And uh, and so we're all about kind of trying to dig up uh, dig up the past as it were on on some of these these people so a lot of that you know recent success has been buoyed by like you mentioned the cinephile game nights which we started with our dear friend Corey Everett creator of the cinephile game uh, and Jordan Raup of the film stage uh, during the pandemic and recently uh, as of this recording we just wrapped up uh, three a set of three games at the New York Film Festival that were all extremely you know well attended and uh, a lot of fun it's been very cool I think Tim's been upfront about the fact that one of the reasons behind this podcast is a ploy to get on one of those game nights. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not going to hide it. <laughs> well, you've as for, as far as I'm concerned, you've just booked your ticket. So The Hawk Talk boys are ready yeah. for some Mechacore, <laughs> and your audience know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that said, Connor, let's get into it. Maybe you'd like to also tell us about your own relationship and your sort of personal experience uh, with the work of Ethan Hawke, and in particular, your history with the film that we're talking about today. So I was always kind of just tangentially aware of him as like a younger budding cinephile. So like around the time that Training Day came out and things like that, like I knew who he was and I, and I you know, liked him in movies and stuff, but it, I, I didn't necessarily immediately gravitate towards him. And honestly, uh, and I'm not blowing 
blowing smoke, but I do just have to thank Dan Mecca for my my now infatuation with with Ethan Hawke because Dan and I became fast friends in college and and so that's kind of where he introduced me to Great Expectations and uh, which we both love. We talked about on our Ethan Hawke episode and also just, you know, I then on my own kind of dove into the before movies, which I had yet seen at the time. And uh, so it kind of grew fast and furious when I just realized like I'm just sort of fascinated and in love with like his whole ethos as a performer and artist and how he seems to go about choosing the things that he chooses and not to mention just his general talent. But like, I think it's kind of a package deal with him, at least as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the way he just thinks about how he chooses things and and, and his general candor about all of it too. He's a great you know he's a great interview uh if you read or uh, or listen to anything that he's done in that front and then with this movie i was aware of this movie sort of alongside and you know like dead poet society and i had seen it as a kid cuz one of my young my one of my older brothers kind of loved it and i i remembered it different differently if i'm being honest i feel like i had this in like a different subset of movies in my brain but it's it's fun to revisit because i haven't seen it since i was i don't know maybe like eight years old wow that that's early to see this yeah yeah for sure i i can't say i've got a hugely significant history with this film i i'd seen it once before researching for this show i remember thinking it was like an incredible story but that's about all i remember of it from from that time Mm -hmm. I think it's also one of few mountain movies that I haven't recommended to my mother, who is fascinated by mountaineering, but less so by movies involving cannibalism. Sure. (laughs) I can't imagine why. (laughs) Friend of the pod, Billy Ray Bruton, would probably want to fight me for the title on this, but I am the world's biggest fan of director Frank Marshall's follow-up to Alive Congo. Congo, where you are the endangered species. <laughs> and we'll get to Congo Corner later. Suffice to say, part of my excitement going into Congo that first time theatrically of the three that I saw it was his having directed Alive. The one and only time I'd seen it before the rewatch for this show was also before I started noticing Hawk. I remembered him from the publicity stills for the movie, and that's about it. I mean, really, it was the plane crash sequence that stayed with me most vividly. So between the particular actor lens through which we watched these films for the show and the almost 30 years between viewings, uh, this was almost a completely fresh experience. Having talked about the film, we should start with the book. It was written by Piers Paul Reed with a great deal of input from the survivors and published just a couple of years after the crash. And in that way, it strikes me as the closest you could really come to a contemporaneous account. The film was made 20 years later, and now, though it won't go out for a while, we're actually recording this episode just one day before the 50th anniversary of the crash. Wow. Which feels like either eerie or serendipitous, and I'm not sure which. I mean, either way, of all of Hawke's movies we were considering for this month's episode, we I mean, we really could not possibly have picked a better moment to be talking about Alive. Which is the story of a plane chartered by an uh, amateur rugby team that crashed in the Andes on the 13th of October 1972. Some of the 45 passengers and crew were killed on impact, others seriously injured. Weakened by starvation, extreme cold, and by the awful knowledge that the search had been called off, the survivors had to face the inescapable truth. To live, they must eat the flesh of their dead companions. 
funny that because that description is off the back of uh, my movie tie-in edition of the novel and that rather ironically immediately flags one of the major sticking points of the adaptation the terrible decision to eat the dead bodies of their friends in order to survive is at the heart of every aspect of this story and yet you've got the filmmakers of this Walt Disney telling wary of that they're always seeming to hurry through scenes or even mentions of the consumption of human flesh they're handling cannibalism like a hot potato unable to ever really settle on this grisly and disturbing story point which it must make up at least 100 pages of the 300 page book Uh, frank marshall to me always seems to have his eyes on something scenic or more adventure focused so, Connor, I, I don't know that you read the book. I I have not, but I was trying to do as much research as I could into kind of the, the, the sticking points that you were both talking about. And I also was struck by, you know, I, I think some of those sticking points came up in a few of the older reviews that I had read at the time from the time that it, that it came out. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, and granted, this must just obviously be partially because of the way we think about these genres now, maybe versus like 1993. But like everyone kind of kept saying like, oh, Frank Marshall is like more concerned with like action than anything else in this movie. And I, I mean, again, maybe it's by today's standards. I found this movie to be like way more introspective than than I had sort of anticipated based on the reactions of that book versus film sort of comparison. I I understand sort of all the criticisms you just mentioned because, yeah, it does feel as sanitized as a movie about cannibalism can be. Yeah. What I will say there is in, in that respect, the book is agonizingly more detailed than the film. Sure. The the film never shows us things that the book describes, like the eating of internal organs, the use of skulls as bowls, or occasionally being able to light a fire and make stew. Mm. I'm not saying it needed to be cannibal holocaust. Right. But yeah, everything feels a bit tidy. Maybe a, maybe a bit more like ravenous. You guys see ravenous? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, here's an extract from the book. This is graphic. So if you don't want to hear descriptions of dead bodies and the eating of them, skip forward about a minute. They therefore sought to make what food they had last longer by eating parts of the human body which previously they had left aside. The hands and feet, for example, had flesh beneath the skin which could be scraped off the bone. They tried to to eat a human tongue off one corpse but could not swallow it, and one of them once ate the testicles. On the other hand, they all took to the marrow. When the last shred of meat had been scraped off the bone, it would be cracked open with the axe and the marrow extracted with a piece of wire or a knife and shared. They also ate the blood clots, which they found around the hearts of almost all the bodies. It was not just that their senses clamored for different tastes. Their bodies too cried out for those minerals of which they had for so long been deprived, almost all for salt. And it was in obedience to these cravings that the least fastidious among the survivors began to eat those parts of the body which had started to rot. This had happened to the entrails of even those bodies which were covered with snow, and there were also the remains of previous carcasses scattered around the plain, which were unprotected from the sun. What they would do was take the small intestine, squeeze out its contents onto the snow, cut it into small pieces and eat it. The taste was strong and salty. One of them tried wrapping it around the bone and roasting it in the fire. Rotten flesh, which they tried later, tasted like cheese. The last discovery in their search for new tastes and new sources of food 
were the brains of the bodies which they had hitherto discarded. Canessa had told them that, while they might not be of particular nutritional value, they contained glucose, which could give energy. He had been the first to take a head, cut the skin across the forehead, pull back the scalp, and crack open the skull with the axe. The brains were then either divided up and eaten while still frozen, or used to make sauce for stew. The liver, intestine, muscle, fat, heart, and kidneys, either cooked or uncooked, were cut up into little pieces and mixed with the brains. So as you were saying, Connor, not having read the book, the way Frank Marshall and screenwriter John Patrick Shanley address their means of survival feel evasive and narratively undernourished, or uh, Sam and I making too big a meal out of No, I love, I love that. Um, it points to you. <laughs> no, I... I don't know if you guys are making too big a meal out of it because, again, context matters. And and again, if these are especially these, you know, this is a real thing that we're talking about in real people's lives and and their real trauma, right? So I don't think any of it necessarily needs to go sort of understated. But I was just sort of way more surprised at the sort of especially since all the reviews were calling it kind of an action picture. I was surprised at the distinct lack of that. You know, like it. If we're just talking purely on genre terms, right, there are there's the plane crash and then there is basically nothing. There's just not much in there throughout most of the movie. A lot of it is talk and consideration and and those things. So I understand the point of it not getting maybe as graphic or horrifying as it may have actually really been. I was just, and this isn't to let anybody off the hook, I was sort of surprised that they talk about any of that stuff really at all without even more, you know, kind of allusion to it. Because one of the, one of the, I think, unintentional side effects of skirting around it that actually benefits the movie, in my opinion, is it feels commonplace. And so I think the movie kind of pulls an interesting trick or attempts to pull an interesting trick. I don't know if it's completely successful. And I think maybe it would have been if, to your point, maybe it had been a little bit more graphic and horrifying up front. Maybe this would have worked better. But but as the movie goes on, they're just having conversations about whole other logistical things while like snacking on human jerky. And I sort of... Again, I can't speak to the authenticity of that necessarily in terms of motivations or reactions, but from a cinematic standpoint, I thought it was fascinating. I was like, oh yeah, I guess like if they've just committed to the bit, you know, at a certain point, if that is just, if you've already gotten over the hump of having to do this really unnatural and terrifying and and horrible thing, maybe it would be second nature to you by the time, you know, you're just trying to figure out how to make a sleeping bag so that you can go climb the mountains. And and that I, I don't think that was wholly intentional. I do think it was more from a general overall sanitization of the whole thing. But I do think it was kind of this a, a kind of accidental nice touch that I I kind of felt while watching it. You, you talked just now about getting over the hump. So I think from that perspective, it's, it's perhaps less about what is or isn't graphically shown. I, I think the problem for me is is deeper than that and speaks to the the talkier element that you highlighted there it's that you almost entirely miss for me at least a key psychological component sure the film is never really brave enough to dwell on the obvious repulsion of eating human flesh never never mind eating the flesh of your friends yeah for all for all the talk amongst the survivors of getting themselves in the headspace to actually do it to get over that hump when the moment comes no time is spent on any of our lead characters who, by the way, are almost all exclusively Roman Catholic. 
Yeah. No time is spent with them sitting with the potentially sinful ramifications of what they've just partaken in. And nor do we see any of our leads really wrestling with actually putting that flesh in their mouths when they're finally forced to eat it. We're no squirm-inducing moments of their own bodies rejecting the meat as they try and digest it. And like Sam said, I'm not expecting cannibal holocaust. I'm not expecting a Hollywood staging of projectile vomit fest. Mm. But stating your disgust without showing it to me at least feels a little cheap and disrespectful to the truth of the ordeal. And we're, we're all saying this, aren't we? That it's as cleanly sanitized as the snowy mountaintops. As you said, Connor, this becomes the survivor's new normal and to me there's something uh it's interesting you're seeing the positive there to me there's something perhaps a little glibly casual about the way it's depicted on screen we get a few statements of distaste and a few gross reaction shots but once that's over and done with it yeah pretty soon they're popping in their mouth like like it's takeaway chicken I guess I kind of fall between the stalls there. In the, I think the bigger miss for me is that it barely really sketches the politics around food. The, the way that in, in the crash, uh, certain people were delegated to be the ones portioning out rations and the way that the expeditionaries got the best of the rations to build them up. There's a lot of tension in the book around that, uh, a lot of resentment uh, around it as well. And that really could have been better depicted, I think. In the book regarding those group dynamics, those internal politics and the resentments you just spoke of, you've got this very large group of people trying to survive, you know, the most adverse circumstances imaginable. And the script never really gets into the hierarchy that forms among the group or indeed the splinter groups within it. And as you've already stated, Sam, it's those with the strongest will of mind, uh, those who are most physically fit, who are chosen to be the expeditionaries. Because of this, they've got the warmest clothes, the biggest pieces of meat. Not everybody ate equally, which led to certain members of the group sneaking extra pieces or taking meat from those too weak to barely eat anything who would be in the film, the two characters that we have in uh, in hammocks at the back of the plane. I think, too, they kind of get hamstrung by the... I was not a huge fan of the frame story that they put in there in the film, just in terms of the Malkovich of it all. And I think it kind of... It, it trips them up a little bit because I think Marshall does at some point think that he's making a, like, will they make it out of their suspense adventure movie? And it's like, well, you've given me a frame story, so they make it out of there. Like, never never mind the fact that it is based on a true story, right? Like, let's even leave that at the door. If you're just giving me, if I'm walking into a movie about people who crash on a mountaintop and you open it with a person saying like, yeah, we made it out of there. Like, (laughs) I, to some degree, the suspense is lost. I know there are still other ways to build suspense other than like who made it out and, and what have you, but I can definitely see a world where the the logistics of how to go about and to, to your point the politics of the food and and who gets what he's maybe still a bit too sanitized of a director to tackle this but in terms of the mechanics of storytelling what you're describing almost makes me think somebody like Ron Howard would be better suited to a movie like that because he his best movies are movies about process and 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 logistics in terms of you know normally it's in the form of people being very good at their jobs but I do think this is a movie that maybe could have benefited from a one or two scenes of like an interesting montage of like yeah okay here are the arms the arms have the most x y or z we're gonna you know you're gonna eat yeah. those because you have to go over the mountain like that's some harrowing but also very 
pragmatic and fascinating psychology on play that I think, you know, if someone were to break down the the actual logistics of it, and again, back to your point about you don't need to make it some horror genre piece either. The most fascinating thing about all of it, and I guess kind of goes back to what I was saying before, is that by the latter half of the movie, the eating of people becomes a explicitly pragmatic decision. And I think getting to the process of, of landing in that headspace is probably one of the most vital aspects of the story that you're right. They rip the bandaid off as fast as they can just so they can get to the other side of it. I love that you pick somebody who would be perfect in dealing with process and yet who strikes me as equally sanitized, if not more so. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's, yeah, again, it's not so much the uh, the genre or, or the tougher elements of it. It's more like I can see, you know, I'm, I'm like thinking of a version of the Apollo 13 sequence where they scatter out all the pieces onto the table and they're like, we have to build a filter. Like, you know, like I'm like envisioning a scene like that, but just with human body parts. You know, like <laughs> then you you mentioned the frame story with John Malkovich, and I, I don't know about the two of you, but I really did think that he was supposed to be Ethan Hawke's character Nando grown up, and it turns out he's not. He's the character played by Bruce Ramsey, so it's sort of doubly confusing in that way. Who's kind of mouthy, you know, but like isn't a is not you know what become basically our three leads, right? Which is another sort of weird part of it. I mean, just vocally, he has a very similar quality to what Hawk has in this film, but we'll, we'll yeah, come exactly. back to that. We were talking about how the group functions. Unfortunately, I think the film, not only does it make a pretty half-hearted effort of setting up that group pecking order and the young men within it, it feels a lot less human and more like a series of set-piece casualties of those people outside of the leads. They feel like... They're there to be cruelly dispatched one by one for suspense and thrills yes. until only the essential survivors read those with top billing remain. Yeah, I would say, though, to some degree, that's the nature of adaptation. It loses quite a bit of the individual characteristics, but there are some commendable things in that, first of all, it, it doesn't entirely hold back the moments when the survivors were confrontational or otherwise not charitable with each other. For instance, there's that early sequence with a lady who both of whose legs are broken and she's screaming and plaining in pain. And, and one of the others just yells at her in pure frustration. And it's entirely understandable. Those are only small moments, as are a bunch of other important things, like us seeing the, the divide between the workers and the shirkers. And all these things are only really addressed once and quickly. That in particular, in, in one moment when Antonio, played by Vincent Spano, asks if some of the other survivors who are just sitting outside on the on the airplane seats are going to help with anything. And they just sort of laugh it off. And yeah, they're brushed over quickly, but at least they're present. I mean, I, I don't think it's that often that you see disaster films, and this is a disaster film, acknowledge the way that tension like this can can make those sort of sharp divisions. That the sequence you just mentioned, and even the when he <clears throat> when he sort of asks them all about who ate the extra rations because they think they're gonna get saved, right? They they assume obviously sort of stupidly and incorrectly that they'll be for some reason just picked up the next day, right? And they 
they kind of chow down sort of and he flips out on them obviously just justifiably so because he's he's thinking long term right I did that was I think kind of one of the stronger scenes in the movie because of the way I feel like it does accurately reflect what a social dynamic in that situation would probably operate in where it would just be this thing of like you have everybody kind of sit there and stifled and not say anything as he's sort of freaking out and then you'd have a slow trickling of people being like yeah man I don't know we all had a little bit of something we don't know what we're doing I do kind of like that those roles and responsibilities aren't as you know they're nebulous and they're not clearly defined other than Vincent Spano sort of taking charge in that portion of the film because that feels correct to me. I, I Just as someone who works in production, I mean, generally, uh, not defining a role is is a disaster because you will just get people sitting there going like, eh, not me. And it, that's just the way human beings, I think, in general uh, operate, even outside of extremely uh, traumatic or stressful experiences. And so that stuff to me felt stronger. I, I do think it's a it's an icky bit of sort of navigation around specifically, to your point, Sam, the plane crash. It's a very well-produced set piece for 1993. Like, I'll say that. Like, it's effective. It's certainly horrifying. Doesn't seem like the movie ever really wants to wrestle with the gravity uh, of especially that initial body count. And granted, to your point about the nature of adaptation, I mean, yeah, like by the same token, James Cameron can make something like Titanic that that has an extremely rousing second half where a bunch of people who were real people also die, right? And it's and it's for the sake of our entertainment. And there's certainly something to be said for that. And I think there's a way to navigate those things. I think obviously there's also a difference when you're making this movie a hundred years later versus a few years later, or 20 years later, whatever. Between those two movies, maybe it's just a difference in scale. You sure. simply can't deal with a thousand or two thousand people falling off a boat. That sequence when everyone's falling from the deck yep. in, in Titanic, yep. you can't deal with all of those people individually. But when you're shrinking it down to 16, it's like, it's almost manageable and it's a bit frustrating (laughs) that they don't all get a bit more color you know but it's far more intimate right like you're you're just placed in a more intimate scenario and these people especially in the first half of that in the in the opening five minutes or whatever like they give people faces you know and i that's i feel like that's deliberate and it is effective you do watch that crash and it is horrifying because you're like oh jo- you know josh lucas was just there two seconds ago you know or what like you know whatever it might be i got very excited for those two seconds but alas there he goes <laughs> I, on that note, I will say, did you guys get like a bit of face blindness watching this movie? Yeah. I, okay, cool. That's so that's not just me. I so many of these dudes are just like bland white boys who look the same. Well, they're, they're dressed the same. Their their faces are obscured most of the time. Yeah, that definitely became hard for me to kind of track for a minute until they really started honing in on like the three or four leads, you know? On that though, if we identify the characters played by Ethan Hawke and Josh Hamilton, that in Hawke's case, Nando Parado, and in Hamilton's case, uh, Roberto Canessa as the film's co-leads... How do you think the the film sort of succeeds in in building the personalities around them, distributing those key moments among the, this group of initially thirty five, but you know eventually just down to sixteen? It's a smart decision, I think, from a screenwriting standpoint to to do that. I you know I've I have not read anything to this effect that would corroborate this, but I can't imagine 
Shanley's not at least using Lord of the Flies as a as a, a loose template, right? Because like it's not quite as divisive as something like Lord of the Flies in terms of the the things that Josh Hamilton and Ethan Hawke represent. Like they are still allies and on the same side, but the movie makes a distinct sort of mention of like this is the thing that I do and this is the thing that you do, right? And and that's why we are both here, sort of to yeah, at least it led me to roll my eyes a little bit. But I think it's smart. I don't. In terms of your question of how successful it is, I I don't know if it entirely works because I do think it leans into what we keep going back to as one of the major problems is, you know, I think the minute you hone specific survivors out as leads, right, which, you know, you kind of have to because it's a movie and, and whatever. But but the minute you do that and you break it away from an ensemble piece, it does then feel more like a piece of genre filmmaking as opposed to something that should be maybe potentially a more accurate representation of, you know, the thoughts and feelings at play. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, the rest of the cast don't really have that many sort of distinctive moments to themselves. I guess the exception here is is perhaps Ileana Douglas, who's a great actress who, you know, could have made something more, I think, of a character who, Tim, I, I think you found a little exasperating in the book. Oh, yeah. But that kind of falls victim to compression here, and, and she really largely stands out for being the only woman with a major role in the film. Thankfully, though, the it could have been a lot busier. So Shanley makes the very wise choice of dropping a parallel storyline about some of the parents searching for the plane. And when I was reading the book, these were sections I was racing through myself. I got lost amongst all the names of immediate and extended family members. And regardless, I just wanted to be back on the mountain. And he also actually excises uh, this pretty existentially dark aftermath of their rescue and the struggle they have in readjusting back into civilization. For those interested in reading the book, it's some of the most richly complex and affecting material on the page. But honestly, it would require a film of its own. You know, it's a sequel I'd, I'd have gladly seen. That strikes me as a wise choice. What I would say, and, and Connor, I, I don't know if you agree with me here, but adaptation for me is about finding like the spine of the material and making that the thing that you focus on. And and this is, is a very good example of that. It, I don't think it's a great adaptation in a lot of ways, but it definitely nails that. The story of the plane is is the center around which every other element of the story pivots. And yeah, you know, making us making it the entire focus, it just puts us like viscerally inside this isolation. And and cutting back to the back and forth to their parents would just have neutered that. It's the smartest decision of the whole adaptation. If if you look at more recent survival dramas that try and pivot away from the immediate danger to the families at home and uh Connor, these are definite future B side contenders. You've you've got films like The Last Command with Colin Firth or the, the the 33 with Antonio Banderas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Films like that, they only ever feel rockily uneven or thoroughly conventional in, in their ping pong storytelling. Have you, not to pivot entirely, but I do feel like it is loosely connected and I did obviously, uh, you know, I did name check him before. Have you guys seen 13 Lives yet? Not yet. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because I was going to mention Apollo 13 as an example of that really working well. Yeah, 13 Lives does the same thing really well, which again is... You know, I, I I was unaware of the, those other facets of the book, but may, maybe someone like Ron Howard would have been able to call that all together in a uh, in an interesting way. I think the I, I think you're both correct. I think every choice that's made narratively makes total sense if you're making a movie. I do, th- yeah. It, the, the hardest part for me to square is that how much are they leaning into making a like capital M movie versus something that 
is trying to do justice to all the the personalities at play, right? Well, let's talk about the capital M movie side of it then. It it may sometimes lack narrative detail and dimensionality, but really what it does brilliantly is recreating the crash site. And it's uh, shot on location in the Canadian Rockies, doubling as the Andes. Nando Parado, who is the character that Ethan Hawke plays, was actually the film's technical advisor. He was on set for three months, but other survivors also visited the set and they remarked on how eerily accurate that it was. And some of them even said it helped them process and and come to terms with the trauma kind of 20 years after the fact. It's Hmm. really incredibly detailed. And if you look at the pictures and the sets, I by side it is striking how close it is the reason that's so impressive is really unsurprising when you learn that the production design is courtesy of none other than norman reynolds of the empire strikes back return of the jedi oh sure can't go unnoticed the frank marshall produced indiana jones films Uh he did this film alive hot on the heels of his utterly distinctive work on alien 3 soon after this he goes on to de palma's mission impossibles it was a short but undeniable blockbuster career all right so he ended on bicentennial man but hey (laughs) everything that came before it is blockbuster stuff and that's what we're talking about here the capital m movie of it yeah they brought in the big guns which which helps and i think just to kind of talk about the frank marshall part of it i don't know if he's the exact right director for this but i do think in the broader spectrum of his filmography when you look at the other films that he's made it's no wonder to me that maybe he couldn't help but bring out a more sensationalist side of the story than the one that you're describing is on the page, right? I do think it's it's kind of funny when you jump from something like this to Congo, which is like, this feels by Frank Marshall's filmography standards so restrained in terms of what it's attempting to do and, and the story that it's telling versus killer spiders and uh, gorillas and lasers. We'll get to Congo Corner, but I don't want to derail us just yet. What I will say, <laughs> what I will say is that um, you are really convincing me on your role Ron Howard choice, especially, you know, Ron Howard Disney. It seems to make sense. And uh, with with each of your points, I'm really, really coming across. It's winning me over because one of the problems I have with the filmmaking here is the inconsistency with space. It sometimes feels in the plain interiors too roomy by half whenever it wants to try and get everybody visibly in the frame and make that dialogue of a scene bounce around easier in the cutting. Now, I'm, I'm sure much consideration went into this to make the scenes flow, but too often that that grim authenticity is sacrificed for these more easily trackable compositions. And what I wanted was sort of something the book focuses on, that that sort of uh, the squalid state in which they were living, the extreme claustrophobia and unpleasantness. And I was actually thinking, particularly in this time, Wolfgang Peterson in Daz Boat Mood would have been perfect. Yeah, great. I feel like he's like Blockbuster Wolfgang Peterson and Blockbuster Ron Howard, I feel like are on the same kind of, you know, they're in that same area of like the movies that they that they put out. I, I always imagine like they they were probably on all of the same short lists, you know, for different projects. So I do think and even at Das Boot, obviously, for the claustrophobia, but even something like Perfect Storm feels like exactly in the vein of what this movie could have been in terms of the way it, it handles kind of an even keel between blockbuster entertainment and also dealing with the tragic deaths of you know real people. So if we're talking about Marshall here as as a director, I will say that I think uh, shooting on location really pays off big for him in the attempted escape sequences and things like that. 
you can't fake that scale and there's beauty in those images but there's also terror in them because the landscape is just so insurmountably huge that the the scale of the task feels impossible on the other hand i think quite a lot of my problems with the film fall on marshall and, and his direction as we've been talking about so for all the scale that the landscape gives him for me he, mm. he only makes one truly scary sequence on the ground which is when one of the first set of expeditionaries falls through a hole in the snow and is left sort of dangling above a drop and that's really well shot it's properly vertigo inducing very nervy contrast it though with a moment late on when canessa almost falls during the final expedition and there for me the sense of scale is is super limited because of marshall's shot choices there's one in particular like a side-on shot which is so flat that to me it looks like it was shot on a backdrop well i was thinking it actually very well could have been yeah and even i as, as somebody who is utterly petrified of heights and flying <laughs> I, I got nothing from that sequence. And, you know, I feel like there, there's quite a lot of the, the second Frank Marshall in, in this movie for me. Both of those sequences actually got audible gasps from me. But I think you're right in that the, the earlier sequence of him falling through the, the hole there in the snow is much more frightening than the second. And that's a real problem when the second is essentially your climax. Yeah. But to your other point about the scale, you, you, that's why we love these 90s blockbusters, right? You can't beat the complete lack of CG backdrop and, and putting actors in those perilous looking locations. That's a special effect, not just in the way it inspires an awesome sense of physicality, but actually ensures truthful performances from the cast in the way they react to and are dwarfed by that environment. And it's a certain aspects of location filming get undersold when you do have to, you know, maybe sometimes for one reason or another, revert to, you know, shooting a couple days in a studio to pick up this thing or that thing or whatever. Like, I think it gets lost that, you know, doing the real shit sells the fake shit because sometimes those things are going to be moving by either too quickly or, or whatever to, to necessarily catch if they're if they're done right. And I do think I there is a distinct lack of, I'll say, like thrilling terror in this movie at all to me feels relatively psychological it is just and i don't want you know whatever it's he he directed the movie and i and i know we we love congo so i don't want to necessarily rag on frank well i know tim does but i don't want to continue to rag on frank marshall i just i the another another immediate person who popped in my head would be i think about something like peter weir's the way back I don't love that movie overall. I, I on a rewatch a few years ago, we we did we did it for our Sorcerer Ronan episode on the B side, and or a rewatch. I, I liked it a bit more. I think that movie still fails in a couple of places, but they're similar. You know, they're they're survival movies basically. And I think at the very least, Weir has a better sense of sort of the static nature of this kind of like survival journey and survival movie, right? And 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 I think Marshall's just. He's a way more, let's say, stylized sort of blockbuster director. I, I think he's I think he's someone who likes to, like, have a little bit of fun. And he this movie feels antsy, you know, but not not in a way that these people are waiting to be rescued. It's that it it's like he kind of can't wait to get through all of it so he can have them climb the mountains again, you know, and it's it just feels 
very at odds with itself. I'd be very curious to see Shanley's script versus what's on the screen too. Like I'd be very curious to see like how the de- actual development of this movie took place. I'd also be curious to know of like how did this make it to Frank Marshall? Are are the people that we just talked about like were they probably asked or or considered or 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 what have you? I can definitely see Howard being in the conversation. Yeah, and and Wolfgang probably, right? Like I I could definitely see the two of them. And again, not to knock Frank Marshall, I just I'm willing to bet he's never first on anybody's list at this time in terms of you know directing a thing. I think most things I don't want to you know, speak out of school, but I do believe like most things he did wind up directing were things that were either like optioned to Spielberg or like, you know, whatever. That circle of people, one one person or the other considered making a thing and then he kind of wound up making it, you know? To get back to those real locations and to pivot into the reason that we're here to speak about the man of the hour, I think filming in those locations must surely be great for eliminating any sense of ego from the work. Actually, which in Hawke's case is something of a problem here. I'll I'll let you uh, kick us off, Sam, with this. Yeah, there's a a very good feature-length documentary about the case, and there's a a good on-set documentary on the DVD. Both of those feature quite a lot of the real Nando Parado. Look, I'm a a huge Ethan Hawke fan. I do an entire podcast series about him. (laughs) And as good as he is in this film on his own terms... Seeing him directly opposite the real Parado, I just think he's miscast. I I agree, but 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 even outside of those terms, like I, he just doesn't feel like the right person. But sorry, keep going. Again, I I don't know if you saw any of the documentary stuff. So let me just say that the real Nando is is much bigger. He's uh, much imp- more imposing. He's stockier, deeper voiced. Hmm. And and both the book and the documentary paint him as a much more forceful character. Look-wise, all they really have in common is the hairstyle. And even that's just kind of what Ethan Hawke looked like in 1993. The, the documentary also just kind of outright states that Nando is often seen as the hero of the story, fair or not. But the film, to me, seems much more to give that role to uh, Josh Hamilton's Canessa. Yeah. And... I feel like a lot of that is actually down to Ethan Hawke's relative reserve in the part. It's almost like you're watching Hawke, the actor, feeling his own insignificance in the enormity of the landscape. And his instincts as a young performer, they seem to be humbled by the natural wonder that surrounds him. And while it's a maturity I can't help but be very impressed by, we get a performance that strikes me perhaps as a little too respectful and pensive to, uh, as you were saying, Sam, to speak to that sheer force of superhuman will that the real Nando Parado was, you know, a man who it must be uh, reminded lost his mother and sister on the doom flight and soon after thought only of returning to his father to ease his pain. I also can't help but feel his quality of quietly communing with nature uh, is actually down to the fact that the director of photography on live, Peter James, had uh, just recently worked with him, so he didn't have to spend time learning the particular moves of uh, that dance that happens between an actor and a DP. Mm. So instead, he kind of gets to solely focus on the environment that's looming so impossibly large over him. And and yeah, even then, at times, he tends to get a little lost in it. It's it's interesting to hear you describe the real-life Nando because, yeah, it, I mean, this maybe also goes back to just all half of these dudes all kind of look like they came out of the same catalog or whatever. It it feels like he he doesn't contrast Josh Hamilton enough. I feel like in both his demeanor and 
it's really kind of there's a little bit of like a you know, I, I hate to bring everything back to, you know, some version of Troy Dyer. And I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase an actual quote from Hawk that I always love because I do think, you know, I, I'm about to get caught up in it. But he says, like, when people tell me they feel like I'm just playing myself, that means I'm doing a good job because they don't know me, you know, like they don't know. And I, I do think that's a great, obviously a great mindset to have about it. And it's a point well taken. What I will say is I think sometimes when people say that they don't really mean it feels like Ethan Hawk is just playing himself. I think they mean that it just feels like he's in some kind of a mode that they've seen in other places. And he's a younger actor here, obviously. So it it does feel what what seems like a logical development into some of the maybe niftier tricks he he employs in some of, you know, in both Reality Bites and then in the Before trilogy. Like those characters aren't the same people, but they they do feel like they may be tiptoe around the same ethos. And I feel like he has a little bit about of, of that here, this kind of um this kind of uh not necessarily too cool for school, but a, a level of arrogance to just be able to push through something. And I think that's certainly something that, you know, the movie could talk about. Like there is an element of like, yeah, he kind of comes off as a bit of a prick, but like he also is just trying to just keep going right and so that dynamic is certainly interesting i think to me it just play he just kind of weirdly plays it like an impetuous youth to your point tim about just you know it does i don't really feel like he successfully plays up that like he lost what seems like half of his immediate family you know like and so i don't i can't immediately think of anybody i'd replace him with but yeah it just it it feels it it feels like he's working out some kinks here in his abilities as a performer that get smoothed out you know, only a few year, a few years later. Frank Marshall was actually the producer of the earlier Hawk film Dad with Jack Lemmon and Ted Danson. So clearly he saw something there. Mm. Uh, you know, I can't speak to why Marshall has the job, but I think that that helps explain why Hawk is here. Sure. Uh, it does make you wonder also if Marshall had a hand in sort of splitting that emergent hero position that Hawk is put in between him and Hamilton. It's almost like he was ready to push Hawk to the next level, but he was an untested star. And maybe that's the sense of him feeling like I don't want him to shoulder too much of the focus. Mm. Or as we've said throughout the episode, maybe it's simply a case of Marshall, perhaps not incorrectly seeing the location as star, which he does in in both Congo and Eight Below following this, that both featured stunning location footage. Okay, well, we've talked about some of the issues, but, you know, it's still a very good performance. No, it's not. He's not bad. I just don't think he's uh, necessarily right. Well, on that note, Connor. What do you make more generally of the performance? And are there any moments that kind of stand out for you? I will say I kind of just to go back to my earlier point, I I appreciate the angle of kind of of kind of pigheadedness that that he exudes as he kind of moves forward, because those are those are the characters I do kind of love in these types of movies. Um, not the same kind of movie, but the immediate comparison that comes to mind is is Chris Evans and Sunshine characters that are just like, yo, this dude sucks, but like he's also correct, right? Like, and it's like that, you know, and and having to square that as a viewer is always kind of fun, where you're like, eh, like I, you know, I don't want to be siding with like the dude who seems like an asshole, but like I get it, you know. And I think he does sell through again. The the, the one thing I do like about the movie is the the leg the level of pragmatism to it that that I think he 
he definitely helps sell through this thing of like, look, I don't know. I don't like this, but like if we got to do it, we got to do it. And and it seems almost like something burgeoning on like sociopathic, but and, and, and a character in any other movie, not unlike a Reality Bites or anything else where you'd look at that person and be like, oh, this, this person seems like bad news. In a situation like this, you're like, I don't know. I can't blame him. You know, and I think he I think he does sell that through. And I think that's why it's worth something, even though I think I would imagine it is not what the role requires or probably even asks for on the page. While I've said that I think he sort of fits the role weirdly, there is a, a point at which I think he starts to inhabit it more and it's towards the end of the film. Agreed. I think for me, the the kind of standout moment is when they're heading back from finding the tail of the plane towards the end. Mm. And Nando is sort of driving another of the survivors named Roy back to the plane. He's like, get up and walk 10 steps when Roy is just complaining, I can't, can't go any further. And that's kind of the first time, I think, in the film that we see him having the kind of force of will and of personality that I get from the, the books and the documentaries, Nando. And Tim, I think you had something like that as well. That's later on for me when it's Hawk and Hamilton. They're at the top of the mountain. Yeah. And Hamilton's Canessa, he sees only mountains and, and more mountains and certain death. Whereas Hawk's Nando uh, sees not just a possible way out, but also the magnificence of what's all around them. It's a, a really quiet moment of, have it, of him having transcended the horrors of everything they've endured. And now he's on the other side. He's sort of in this harmonious acceptance with the world and whatever fate awaits him. It's like a more a place of more meaningful existence that he wouldn't have ever reached if the plane hadn't crashed. And I think Hawk plays the moment in this sort of hushed reverence where you feel the gratitude of every breath we hear him taking. And I'm sure, actually, it would have landed with far greater impact had the rest of the performance offered a, a contrast by way of an earlier, more aggressively determined tunnel-visioned register. No, no, no notes. That's I think that's spot on. Like I, I felt the same way watching that scene. He there's also like a level of like I'm always so impressed when people can properly sell through you know, multiple things at the same time. And I think in that scene, there's, like you said, the hushed reverence, but it's also sort of buoyed by this just general exasperation. You know, Josh Hamilton is giving into that exasperation. Hawk is sort of using it as a reason to keep going. He's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, there's literally nothing else we can do. We may as well just keep going. Like, even if we die, like, what's the difference? You know, I would say, you know, maybe the the bummer is I do think it almost is like a, a little too late because at that point, the movie's got like, you know, five minutes left. You know what it is that we've lived this long the way we have? 70 days that we climb this mountain. You know what it is? It's impossible. It's impossible, and we did it. No. I'm proud to be a man on a day like this. Alive. That I live to see it. And see it in such a place. Take it in. I love you, man. Look. It's magnificent. It's God. 
you did mention earlier, actually, at the other end of the movie, the, the, the one sequence that it gets unmistakably right, which is the opening plane crash. If the movie is not well regarded or remembered today, I think any mention of it to those who do remember it at all will surely have them immediately recalling this sequence. Yeah. I, I think its impact is really helped by just a couple of minutes worth of sort of camaraderie and fun atmosphere that precedes it when we start on the plane and everyone's having a good time and messing around and then it's just ripped away from them in much the same way that the plane is just torn open and it's all suitably terrifying and the effects are very well realized the model work in particular is is excellent and um did you guys spot the wilhelm scream i did not where is it there's one in the the crash i think as somebody has fallen oh okay it's it's not like a prominent character that gets it right like lucas doesn't get it or somebody right no no i only spotted it after just watching the sequence in isolation on youtube and even though that's something we laugh at now and and it's not prominent so thankfully it doesn't take us out of that moment i like the wilhelm scream it's fun i think it's fun too but i do think it does lead back to that problematic nature that we were talking about with the sequence right obviously for entertainment because it is a movie but at the end of the day there's also a level of like you have to make it appropriately horrifying right because of, of the sort of proximity i think a the proximity to the event and b the the smaller scale of more intimate number of people you're dealing with yeah fair enough i will say this movie's basically two hours this speaks also maybe to the larger trends in filmmaking that I don't necessarily love. I feel like if this movie were made now, there would be like 45 minutes before the plane crash or something. Like this movie would be two hours and 45 minutes long and there would be whole sequences of like them playing rugby and them getting ready for the trip. And I think that would be done to service the thing of like, yeah, let's make sure we know that they are all friends and have these roles and responsibilities. And, you know, maybe there's a version of that movie that has a kind of interesting before and after the tragedy dichotomy to it. But I do commend this movie for its economy of efficiently getting you to know to a degree like the 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 temperature in the room before it literally tears it apart here they do the camaraderie and the crash in seven minutes it's impressive it's impressive filmmaking and i think in the almost 30 years since even though we've got some quibbles with it if i'm honest i think only joe carnahan's the gray can actually lay undisputed claim to the most terrifying nerve shredding crash sequence i mean that one's so intense you can practically feel the whiplash change in air pressure it's so viscerally choreographed i would level i would level uh robert zemeckis's flight in there as well that plane crash to me is uh i mean it's not it's obviously like a different situation than something like the gray but i, I thought you were going to actually go cast away which a lot do but here's oh a- sure sure yeah well, no here's my problem with that though for all its immersiveness i think it relies way too heavily on cg water mm, like at the end of it yeah speaking of cg i mean i know sam that you're probably going to say Final Destination, right? <laughs> okay, what I'll say about this is, generally speaking, as as I was saying earlier, or alluding to earlier, I can't be doing with plane crashes in movies. <laughs> it, it's not that I won't watch them, but like I said, I am terrified of heights and flying, so I do tend to avoid them where possible. I, I skipped flight. I, I have seen Final Destination a bunch of times because it's so silly that I can kind of disconnect from it. But some of the others that Tim mentioned when we were talking about this just off mic, uh, Fearless and Fight Club and 
you, you have a particular uh, favourite, don't you, Tim? I do. It's uh, one US Marshals. <laughs> sure. That would be the superior sequel to The Fugitive. And if you think I'm a lone madman in this opinion, just ask Clay Keller, all right? Yeah, uh, Clay Keller is like the the internet's number one US Marshals fan. Um, you, you are two madmen. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> and I'll also shout out the heavily US Marshals inspired Michael B. Jordan starring Without a Trace. Otherwise, is dreadful but for its plane crash it really felt like it was time warping us back to the 90s heyday of practical effects on giant sets i i haven't seen that one i'll have to, to youtube that one yeah worth it for that sequence i haven't seen most of those my, my thing with heights is bad enough that i couldn't even watch the trailer for man on wire i had to like look away from the screen when it came on when it was playing at the cinema <laughs> i i will pass on that but I do have to give it that it, you know, sort of thrives on that confidently composed visual chaos and, and that chaos that continues into the aftermath of the crash. And I think it's that sequence as they sort of hunt for and treat survivors that they do some of the best work in the film of telling the story purely visually. Yeah, it's the, the movie is stronger in the, in the first kind of 20 maybe than it is anywhere else. Yeah, there's a, a lovely little thing like where where they're using cushions to walk on to avoid falling into the snow and that could have been a long discussion about what we should do to avoid falling into the snow but yeah. it's just shown. I really wish that approach could have carried on throughout because one of the biggest fails is at one point we have a single character who is relaying to the group what they've managed to hear from radio reports on the ongoing rescue operation when they uh, temporarily get access to that. Wouldn't it have been so much more powerful actually hearing those radio reports and watching all the hope drain from this character's face? And that also would serve to up that feeling of impossibility and of of, the world and God against their survival. I think using it as a narrative device in that way, Shanley appears to me to have missed the obvious open goal of not only using that, but he did... By using the radio, you get to include the fact that the winter of the crash had seen the heaviest snowfalls um, in the Andes for the past 30 years. If we'd had had that information, it would have been even more demoralizing and really added weight and stakes. Yeah, you're totally right. And and it is kind of a... It is kind of an easy access point for for a little bit of exposition if you want to throw it in there, right? Like to kind of just set the stage a little bit. It is also robbed of any dramatic tension that you could easily find a few times in a movie like this of like a character having some burdensome piece of news that they have yet gr- grappled with how to share with a broader group of people, right? That it, it is very sort of, it moves through it in a way of like, hey, we found out this thing. We're going to tell you this thing. There's the reaction to me telling you the thing as opposed to not necessarily the movie needs to drag other things out, but I think it could navigate all those conversations in in certainly a more dramatic fashion. The two disasters where our survivors feel the most assuredly fucked are, of course, the initial crash and the avalanche, which we've mentioned a couple of times now. That obviously upsets the community and all the routines of daily survival that they've established up to this point. We see the the avalanche initially from outside of the plane, and, and then maybe this is just me I can't help but think that cutting that shot would would make it more effective. You know, you just use the sound before the impact. Yeah. That whole sequence to me, it never feels as claustrophobic as it should. And why are we viewing it all from the surface, for instance, rather than like being under the snow, trapped with these people? Yeah. There's... What it never quite gets is the sort of, except in maybe the first sequence where they're all sleeping packed in together, it's sort of the visceral claustrophobia of it all, and missing it in that sequence is a a big miss for me. 
I think part of that is Marshall's proclivity for being a little bit more of a showman as opposed to maybe taking the avenue that actually might be the most effective. Um, I think it's a force for the tree scenario there that he he wants to show the avalanche because he can show the avalanche, right? You mentioned the castaway plane crash earlier. And part of the reason that plane crash is so effective before you know, you get out onto the water is it's all just in the plane, like it's in the plane. And then there's water rushing in the plane, right? Like there is you're given a sort of horrifying kind of a peek into what it just would be like to experience this terrible event. And I think the avalanche, yeah, would have been a similar scenario where if they had just stuck inside and then you hear the rumble, I suppose there might have been conversations around like, oh, is it going to feel cheap if we do that? There's this big thing happening and we're not showing it. But I I think there's an effective way to to communicate the horror of being suddenly swamped by this monstrous force of nature that I just, I mean, maybe as a filmmaker, he just doesn't have the full faculties or confidence to to pull off. I think you've hit the nail on the head when you described him as a showman, because to me, that shot that Sam is not so keen on, that is Frank Marshall wanting to give the audience a, oh shit moment. Yeah. And yeah. make the viewer more fearful for the lives of so many that are about to be taken. I love what Sam's suggesting, and I think that speaks to that more hellishly claustrophobic Wolfgang Peterson thing I would have liked to have seen from this. But the bigger issue also in, in regards to this event is where it happens in the story. Because in the book, you get the avalanche fairly soon after the crash, so that you really feel the community will to survive immediately weaken as a result. And in the film, it just happens so much later. It smacks of a perfectly screenwriterly act two climax. Sure. And so while its effects are completely devastating, you, you just lose a lot of the feeling of these survivors being kicked when they're down and the world not wanting them to make it out of the mountains. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've sort of been building to. Alive, for me, has some pretty serious pacing issues. As you say, Tim, the, the avalanche actually happened fairly early, historically speaking, I, I, I think about two weeks after the crash. But the, there's a certain virtue to making it two hours long, sure, but it spends about 75 minutes of that on the first 10 days of 72. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, the way the passage of time is handled is really haphazard. I was startled when we got our first title card alerting us to the fact that it was day nine, 54 minutes in. And, and the least they could have done is at least just teed you up 30 minutes earlier with a day one, right? Like just to at least give you some sense of like a line of demarcation. Exactly. To see how this was playing out. But for me, I think when we're talking about the pacing, the other real issue is that as you move into the last half hour, the film has, still has 60 days to go. And all of a sudden, it's rushing to their rescue. It jams the finding of the tail of the plane, which they've been hoping contains the means to make the radio work. And then the final expedition, that's all jammed together in, in quick succession. And for me, I think the finding of the tail is especially diluted. The, the book makes it clear that they were able to bring back quite a few supplies, despite mm. not being able to make the radio work. And we don't get the real impact of that. Perhaps because sure. the film kind of spends that emotional beat earlier on on the wing sequence where they find another part, uh, the wing of the plane. And it's almost to me as though 
John Patrick Shanley hit the second half of the book and realised he only had 40 pages of script left. <laughs> that said, the, the part of finding the wing, it must be said, is notable for momentarily changing the entire tone of the movie because it's the one brief bright spot among everything. Yeah. It's the moment the expeditionaries are able to briefly forget the crash. They, 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 they actually get home on makeshift sleds and it's one of the few, probably the only, truly bright and enjoyably exhilarating moment we see where, where the showman that Frank Marshall wants to be really comes to the fore. I think that's correct. I do think, though, Sam, you're, you're right in thinking as long as Shanley's doing screenwriterly things, he may as well just conflate the finding of the wing with the finding of the tail and you get the same moment. Like they could find the tail and then still have to go back and show everybody and have this joyful moment of like, we've made progress, right? I think that's definitely true. And I I, I think stuff like this for, mo- for movies like this, it, it is tough. I mean, I, I mentioned The Way Back earlier, but my biggest problem with that movie is they do this dramatic thing of, you know, they're making their way through the desert and they're looking at the Himalayas and the entire time they're like, we still have to get over the Himalayas. And then they make it through the desert. And then in a manner of five minutes. It's like, yeah, no, well, we're over the Himalayas. And it's like, I don't know, that seemed like that would have been really hard. <laughs> I think this movie, it's not as egregious with stuff like that, but it is a little, and to your point, Sam, like it does feel like there's a lot of this sort of languid push and then there's the expedition and then it's over. And the expedition itself doesn't actually seem that hard. For me, that that's kind of the last example I mentioned of this, but again, that's the kind of crux of kind of how unbalanced the pacing is. It's is that that ending yeah the relief of finding the stream and and finding the way back to civilization I and mean, it's not even that it's cut short it's that it's almost not there we we don't actually see nando and canessa react to it before cutting back to the helicopters praying right. for the guys on the mountain and that's a real problem i think we we don't as you say feel the the sort of scale and struggle of that final track nor for me more damagingly do we get the sort of emotional catharsis of it at the end? There are some really interesting details of it in the book about when the person who found them actually found them. It's this sort of passing farmer. They didn't speak the same language as him. We we haven't really touched on this, but uh, survivors actually are, they're, they're white Uruguayan. Right. And so they, they speak Spanish. I think they were going into Chile and th- this farmer didn't speak Spanish or something, mm. things like that, and then the, just the catharsis of uh, and and the relief of the moment of him realizing that they weren't unfriendly and that he needed to help them mm-hmm. just isn't there. And yes, it's maybe a bit of a distraction from the stuff on the mountain, but if you've ever earned it within the film, it's at that moment. It's escaping me. I mean, there. Are- there are plenty of movies that have done similar things. You know, I feel like a lot of survival movies do have effective versions of these these things where there's like there's someone in the distance that might be able to help them. And then you're just like, just turn around, just turn around. So you see the thing, right? Like mm. that thing of you can you can mine it for one last bit of dramatic tension, even if they're like collapsed on the side of a road or something. And there's a farmer passing by who doesn't see them. And you draw that out like a little bit, you know, like let it let it linger. You know, they don't even do anything like the the weird thing is when the helicopters show up, they cut it as if you don't think the helicopters are coming, you know, but it's kind of this thing of like, well, you're like, no, they're going to be fine. And, and But they still try and weirdly eke out some tension from it. And not that I wouldn't 
have wanted them to show them finding the stream and the greenery. But I do think like that helicopter bit only works if you don't see what happens to Ethan Hawke and Josh Hamill, right? Like, I don't think that's a better decision overall, but it's this weird thing of like, it tries to mine for dramatic tension in the wrong places. Yeah, certainly cutting it for suspense only works in in that respect. But yeah, I'm not sure cutting it for suspense is, is the best idea in the world. Okay, so one thing that we touched on a little bit earlier is that all of these characters are Roman Catholic or or Mm. almost all of them there's one who expresses being agnostic I don't know that this sort of qualifies as a Christian movie certainly not in the not in the genre sense but it definitely I think puts a fair amount of emphasis on the Christianity of the characters there is discussion at a certain point of eating the the flesh as would God approve or not and a comparison even to taking the Eucharist it's an interesting discussion how much of its Christianity is just the characters and how much bleeds into the movie. I, I wonder how we feel about that. That stuff, I mean, and, and both of you read the book, so I suppose I'll, I'll lob half of it as a question back to you. But I watched that with a sense of like, oh, this must have been just stuff that was there and discussed and was actually sort of some version of part of these conversations and and Shanley felt the need to keep it to some degree. That's how it struck me is that it doesn't feel and it's, it's movies like this are tricky, right? Because I do think if you get into the sort of the long armchair philosophy conversations about God in a movie, like depending on the questions you're asking and the context of those questions, those conversations can be fascinating and intriguing and and you know and part of some of those ideas are why we watch movies. But I think in a world where Marshall and Shanley are trying to wrestle this into some kind of an entertainment piece that's also sort of a survival adventure movie, it, to me, it felt almost like an af- afterthought that Shanley also felt like he couldn't ignore. Like it felt like something that he felt the need or requirement to carry through as as a, you know, the responsibilities of adapting something. But I don't know if he actually minds the conversations themselves for anything that profound really like to me the more interesting parts of the conversation are just the philosophical conundrums of like can you bring yourself to eat another human right i will say this for it as well is that we have sort of said that there's a certain richness that we don't kind of get in the characters because you know things are very compressed by by necessity that's one of the exceptions, you know, it is something that feels like it feeds into all of their personalities in different ways. And again, it's, as I was saying about some of the other character points, brushed over fairly quickly, but at least it's there and it's an interesting set of ideas, at least, even if it isn't really understandably fully dug into. All those questions, you know, the, that this movie, I think, wants to raise with that stuff are, are interesting. I think the tying God into it is not certainly unwarranted, but it does feel like something that gets ingrained there, not because it's something the movie is concerned with in and of itself. It just feels like it needs it as a means of expressing who the characters are. So as we're wrapping up, let's, I think, get into our overall thoughts on the film and, and where it stands among uh, Hawke's filmography. Connor, you're our guest, so do you want to take first crack at this? It's it's on the, you know, it wouldn't be my first recommendation. I'll say that if someone was looking, you know, what are the 10 Ethan Hawke performances I need to see or movies I need to watch. I will say if you've made it through the tier of, uh, you know, the entry level 101 tier of like Ethan Hawke viewing. And, and if you're someone who finds yourself kind of like I mentioned before, if you find yourself maybe wanting to 
see sort of an evolution or stepping stones into like kind of how he maybe honed honed his tools as an actor. I think this is a really interesting curio in that I think actor's journey for him. And overall, again, I think, yeah, as a as a piece of, you know, even outside of Hawk, as just a piece of genre filmmaking, I think it's got things to like, but you know, you even recalled something like the gray earlier or whatever. I think there there are certainly other places to look, but I for maybe people who who've listened to you guys and anybody here is listening who listens to the B side, you know, everybody knows I love a curio. So like there's a part of me that really is fascinated by this movie, but I think for the uh, for the general viewer, they might do well to skip it. Your use of the words evolutionary stepping stone perfectly teed me up because I think most importantly we can all agree that Alive is the transition point in Hawk's floppy-haired curtains era moving into slicked back slacker pinup. Sure. And of the films that qualify in this era, Alive is never going to be remembered before, you know, Reality Bites, before Sunrise, or yes, Dan Mecca-fave and one of mine, Great Expectations. It's important in his career, though, I think, for making him the de facto lead of a film that is courting both box office and awards acclaim didn't really play out in the end for Alive with its January release that suggested Buena Vista Pictures had much higher priorities in that busy awards season. We must remember, of course, 1993 being an absolutely ridiculously stacked year. Overall, with its 36 million domestic gross being not much higher than its budget, Alive ended up placing 42nd in that year's overall box office. So clearly it's not uh, much remarked on today, despite being based on this remarkable true story we've been talking about. It's it's faded to the point of, uh, I'm not quite sure it's you, you would get away with calling it a B-side, but certainly it is uh, somewhat forgotten. I feel like with that in mind, the biggest and most important takeaway for me, considering the hawk of it all, is that we do get him for the first time really sort of front and centre on the poster of a wide release movie, albeit, you know, he's very small there on the poster, but He's, he's there on his first big release. And so in, in a way, that's a first for him. Is he, I haven't looked, is he like above the title or anything? No, no. Okay, so nothing like that. He's like leading the, the other two survivors behind him out of the mountains to freedom. Tim, just generally on your 1993 point, yeah, stacked year. 1993 is one of my favorite movie years. That's maybe because I was 12. <laughs> so there's that. On the whole, though, about Alive, I know we've ragged on it a fair bit. But I do think it's a well-made, but honestly, fairly basic docudrama. Yeah. I think there's a better version of this story to be told. And maybe it has been in the documentary, but I, I think you could expand and retell this story interestingly now that we're 50 years on rather than 20 years on. What I will say, though, is that Ethan Hawke's subtlety kind of results ironically, in what I think is the film's best performance, but weirdly one that feels quite unlike a character who is the real-life inspiration. So it's kind of hard to know where to stack it as a performance in that respect. He's hitting the emotional truth of the beats that he's playing, but sometimes those beats feel wrong if you know about the real character. Sure. It's a weird one. Connor even pointed out that he, not having read the book, felt he was miscast. And I think they say quite clearly they're a, they're a team of rugby players. Hawk simply does not have the build to be yeah. on a rugby team. Mo so. Most most of them kind of don't. They all are kind of some of. I feel like some of them should be stockier dudes. You know, like uh, I think to the his sort of 
misplacement in the movie would uh, this is something i've has come up a couple times recently on the b-side are certain movies like this more successful if they are just fictionalized like purely fictionalized versions of real things where it's just treated you know the story's different maybe they're not even rugby players maybe it's just a plane full of like 14 or 15 people and it's just sort of loosely inspired by the events in the andes right Everybody has different names. And then that way you can kind of skate around like, oh, he doesn't need to be this person, right? Like, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if this movie is more or less successful if it does something like that. I do think that would have better, like, fictionalizing it maybe would have better suited Frank Marshall's interests. You know, I think then he's sort of allowed to make it a little bit more of like an action adventure movie without the without the social responsibility, without the, you know, that that part of the adaptation. And I think maybe Hawk would come out a little bit better in that regard too. I completely agree. And you could readily lose the fact of them being rugby players. But I think the only reason they don't go the fictionalized route or fictionalizing of a true story is that this was considered a prestige picture. And I think I alluded to it earlier. I think it did have a awards consideration on its mind. And you're going to so much more easily get into that bracket if you have a, a true life account. And you can really talk up how authentic you are in the telling and getting all those details right. Ironically, given that we're saying, you know, it's really lacking a lot of the time in, in the more interesting details. I think the other side of that is it would probably have just felt a bit crass, actually. But with the Alive discussion kind of wrapped up, Tim, let's get to the bit that we know you've actually done this Frank Marshall film to get to. Let's put, I don't know, two minutes on the clock and give you Congo Corner. I, for one, am happy this film exists because without the adventure exploration aspect of Alive, Marshall likely doesn't land Congo, which is his biggest box office hit, despite being wrongly derided by just about everyone. So to take the floor uh, for just a moment to talk about a film I love so much that I saved for 10 years to spend thousands of pounds to get the now highly sought after official pinball machine that sat right <laughs> behind me as I record. Or as an ex-girlfriend called it, the Tim Curry quote machine. Honestly, this is one of my greatest life decisions and achievements. But that aside, you look at today's blockbusters that make little to no impression with even less personality. And Congo just has so much I've never understood how anyone can't love a film that climaxes with intrepid jungle explorers using laser cannons to ward off mutant killer apes in a diamond mine of an ancient city on the edge of an exploding volcano and you've got that Jerry Goldsmith score positively erupting in every scene. And you know, this is Goldsmith in the 90s with so much great action work and, and Congo is the most ferocious, crowning achievement of that era. Right as you have a scene where a man parachutes out of an exploding airplane with a talking gorilla strapped to his back, the score <laughs> transcends the scene's complete absurdity with the resplendent, glorious flex of orchestral sweep, while the South African elements, I really believe, are the live-action equivalent of the previous year's The Lion King. And like Alive, Congo boasts breathtaking on-location scenery. And yes, right alongside that, there is a rather beautifully detailed, cheapo B-movie looking sets. But you know what? They have the kind of design that made you want to jump off Disneyland rides and explore more of the scenery. I said this film had Tim Curry quotes, and boy, does it. The notion of the killer ape may be politically incorrect, but that's not to say it's untrue. Of course, it's remembered for Delroy Lindo's sesame cake. Cue the clip. Stop eating my sesame cake! Joe Pantoliano, Joe Don Baker, Ernie Hudson with this Errol Flynn tash playing it like he's in a 1930s jungle adventure movie. Monroe Kelly, I'm your 
great white hunter for this trip, though I happen to be black. And Laura Linney, they all get in on the action with some real howlers. Are you serving that ape a martini? And guys, I have to keep reminding everyone, this is the film that gave us Laura Linney, action star. Watching her kick down the door of a plane thousands of feet up and take out ground-to-air missiles with a, a flare gun without even breaking a sweat. That, that's Ellen Ripley levels of female badassery. And given that you can count on me as my favourite movie of all time, I'm sure the impression she left on me here has to be a huge part of that. Yeah, sure. Spielberg's got Jurassic Park and sweaty Laura Dern being chased by a raptor was the first time 10-year-old me was turned on and terrified at the same time. <laughs> Twister, also Michael Crichton, to my mind, the last great American summer blockbuster, has Helen Hunt in a white tank top. But of the trinity of Crichton babes, Linny will always be my, my, my favourite Michael Crichton blonde. Look, if nothing else, Alive walked so Congo could run and Frank Marshall gave us his one true masterpiece. I'll just say this. There's Silly, which I consider at its best an exalted art form. Then there's just Stupid. Congo kind of fell the wrong side of that line for me. And yeah, Laura Linney action star really worked out. We need to end the episode right here. <laughs> of what you love, always, always. I can't pretend that I get it, my friend. I'm glad we're ending with you, Connor. Come on, chime in. I don't think I can match uh, Tim's unbridled enthusiasm for Congo, but I will say I, you know, you mentioned the difference between silly and stupid, and I think that's a point well taken. I do think though sometimes time is kind to stupid, you know, like uh, elevating it to silly. And I think Congo is kind of one of those movies for me. You can kind of meme something into a level of enjoyability, and while I don't necessarily love when that happens with like so many pieces of pop culture. I think this is one that definitely benefited from it where, you know, if you're laughing at something or with something to some degree, what's the difference, right? And there's still, I think there's still a, there's still a measure of, of value in that, I suppose. To reflect some of Tim's points that I do think totally I, on a recent rewatch, because I, in prepping for this, I did rewatch all of Frank Marshall's movies. Rewatching Congo, the on location stuff really works. Like the set pieces, I think, really work to the gorillas with lasers, I think is where it loses me a bit, partially because I think it does such a good job with like the sequence with the hippos earlier in the movie and things like that. That by the time you get to the gorillas, you know, actors in suits as evil gorillas, it gets a little t- tough to parse. But I think. Ernie Hudson, for instance, has marked this as like one of his favorite performances he's ever given. I totally agree. I think he nails it. I think he's so much fun to watch, just kind of be suave and cunning and and chew, you know, chew on a cigar while he leads this expedition. So, yeah, I think there's a lot on a good sort of Friday night beer and pizza watch. There's there's definitely plenty, plenty to enjoy with Congo. No, you, you don't need beer. You can, you, you can get the same high off Tim Curry's performance. <laughs> Connor, truly, that spirited enthusiasm means that you're welcome back here anytime. What I will say, Connor, we didn't get between me and Tim to all of Frank Marshall's films, but I know... We both looked at Eight Below. Uh, me, for the first time, I'm not sure if it was your first. It was my second, but I had a very different experience this time. It actually came out for me the better of the two films. So it's Marshall once again with Disney. He's once more doing survival in the ice, but this time it's with sled dogs instead of rugby players. And I actually think the dogs are more emotionally expressive, rather remarkably so, in fact, because I teared up over their plight a couple of times. Agreed. Crucially, I think that never really happened with the humans in Alive. I was never 
never moved. And at the very least, certainly Paul Walker has never felt more human opposite canine co-stars. And it has, again, great stunning, in fact, on-location photography. I will say that the dog training and it was clearly remarkable. And yeah, you're probably right. This is about as good as Paul Walker's been. But it didn't really do a whole lot for me beyond stunning scenery. I, I don't know that I'm on Frank Marshall's wavelength as a director, whether he's in super dumb Congo mode or rather more serious alive and eight below mode. Transcendently dumb mode, but sure. I do think it is fascinating to parse like the journey from arachnophobia to alive to Congo because Congo does seem like a fusion of those two movies because I actually quite enjoy arachnophobia. Again, on this, I just think it's sort of a delightfully cheesy, fun, spooky romp with spiders. It's a fun creature feature. Arachnophobia, eight legs, two fangs, and an attitude. That was our rundown of Alive. Connor, tell people where they can find you, where they can listen to you, and, and all of that good stuff. Uh, first, just thank thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate being here. And uh, people can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking. They can find the B-Side on Twitter and Facebook at TFS B-Side uh, or via the film stage. As of this recording, we just, as Tim mentioned at the top, we hit 100 episodes. So we did sort of a fun little lightning round of 99 b-sides for that one and then we also just released our parts two and three on the b-sides of tom cruise he was our first ever subject so we revisited that as kind of a celebration of passing 100 and as of this recording in two days we will have our episode on the b-sides of brian de palma so that'll be cool people can check that out if if you're a listener of this podcast and you are new to the b-side maybe you could use our ethan hawk episode as as an entry point into the B-side uh, featuring the lovely Luke Hicks, who's a, a dear friend of ours and, uh, you know, r- writes and does a whole bunch of other things for the film stage. I will say that that is just what I did and uh, it, it is recommended. Tim, where can people find you and where can they get in contact with the show? Interact with us and share the show on Twitter at HawkTalkPod. Ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Music helps the algorithm, helps us, and helps the show find new ears. Five stars, please. We have five of those currently. And a review from our cinephile card game buddy, Liam, who writes... In all seriousness, Sam and Tim have been two of the most articulate and passionate film folk I've known. Why, thank you, Liam. Now they get to express their love for one of cinema's best working actors. You can hear in their voices the genuine admiration for Hawk as an actor, writer, and human being, all backed up by a wealth of knowledge on his work and their own life histories which drew them to the man. Well, that's exactly what we tried to do here, so I'm really happy that's coming across. If you're enjoying the show, Sam and myself would greatly appreciate it if you'd spend just a few seconds doing the same over on your platform of choice and letting anybody else who might also enjoy the conversation know about what it is we're doing here. Sam? Find me writing about movies at Hey You Guys. You can also find me talking movies, quite often Japanese music, and other things on Twitter at 24FPSUK. And soon, in January, you will be able to hear my brand new podcast, Fearless Pretender, which is a Jennifer Jason Lee filmography podcast. So please join me for that. I love that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Connor, once more, an honor and a privilege as a listener of the B-side since day one. This was so great. (laughs) Anytime. I think having such an excellent guest as yourself has made the two of us sound a little bit smarter by proxy. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening. And please join us next time for more Hawk Talk. Till next month. 
Stay alive, folks. Stay alive, folks.